Welcome to Craft Lit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 113A, The One I Forgot. This episode of Craftlet is also brought to you by Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, the carolinahomespun.com site, and the Golden Gate Fiber Institute at goldengatefiberinstitute.org. And don't forget to check out pollywogbaby.com if you have a child with infant reflux. Yowza. Been there. Lived through it. I'm glad it's over. <laughs> Hi. Um, I skipped two chapters. So 114, which some of you have already heard, uh, is two chapters ahead. It actually, narrative-wise, the yeah, it wasn't so good that you missed one of these chapters. One of them could go out of sequence without causing too much trouble. The other one, not so much. And in fact, I wound up alluding to, in the later podcast... Uh, part of one of these chapters. So, huge apologies all around. The only explanation I have is that I'm just doing too much, and it's all little pieces and nothing whole. And for those of you who are in similar situations as moms who have cobbled together a work life, uh, you understand where I'm coming from. So, getting on with it, because I don't want to waste any time getting to the chapters. The chapters we missed... Uh, chapter 38. Chapter 38 is a Meg chapter. It's been a while since we've had a Meg chapter, and this is the one that could have come out of sequence without causing you too much pain. Chapter 38 is called On the Shelf, and I'm really bummed that I had put this out of sequence now because I love this chapter. For those of you who are listening later, you will see 113a. You will listen to this one before the next, and everything will be fine for you. But people who are listening in real time... I am sorry I got this one out of sequence. Um, Meg. Meg and John have been married for a while, and Meg has two babies, twins, and she has not had time to be a wife. I have a feeling that those of us who are mothers out there all will see ourselves reflected in some degree in this chapter. And, um... Marmy's advice to Meg, the first time I heard it, uh, prickled a little. And yet, I find that she was right. And, and not right just because, oh, you needed to pay attention to your husband, which sounds so ye. Even though it's true, it sounds ye. The thing that is interesting is what you'll see that John does after Meg starts paying more attention to him. And what happens to their relationship, how it deepens, how they become a team. And it goes along with something that I remember reading in a parenting magazine while I was still pregnant with my first son, which was, don't tell your husband that he's doing it wrong unless you want him to not do it at all. You're diapering the baby wrong. I mean, seriously, if he's putting the diaper on the kid's head, Yes, you should probably step in and gently show him how to do it. But, you know, if he puts 
a sock and a sock on and then a shoe and a shoe, like the old all in the family scene, instead of a sock and a shoe and a sock and a shoe. Who cares? The socks and shoes get on. Stop. This to me is that kind of chapter. And the thing that I found most amusing about that is I thought this was a modern problem. And here it is way back in Little Women. You see Meg and John's relationship paralleling so, so many relationships now. And, um, and it's nice to see that Alcott doesn't diminish the problem by making the solution easy, because I don't think it is. I mean, it's contained in a chapter, so it's easy in that sense, but I don't think emotionally it's uh, being given a light treatment. But it's also nice to see her, someone who was never married, to see how observant she was and how much she nailed this one, I think. Anyway, so I'm going to play for you chapter 38 on the shelf, and then I'll break back in for 39. In France, the young girls have a dull time of it till they are married, when Viva la Liberté becomes their motto. In America, as everyone knows, girls early sign the Declaration of Independence and enjoy their freedom with Republican zest. But the young matrons usually abdicate with the first heir to the throne and go into a seclusion almost as close as a French nunnery, though by no means as quiet. Whether they like it or not, they are virtually put upon the shelf as soon as the wedding excitement is over, and most of them might exclaim, as did a very pretty woman the other day, I'm as handsome as ever, but no one takes any notice of me because I'm married. Not being a belle or even a fashionable lady, Meg did not experience this affliction till her babies were a year old. For in her little world, primitive customs prevailed, and she found herself more admired and beloved than ever. As she was a womanly little woman, the maternal instinct was very strong, and she was entirely absorbed in her children, to the utter exclusion of everything and everybody else. Day and night she brooded over them with tireless devotion and anxiety, leaving John to the tender mercies of the help for an Irish lady now presided over the kitchen department. Being a domestic man, John decidedly missed the wifely attentions he had been accustomed to receive. But as he adored his babies, he cheerfully relinquished his comfort for a time, supposing with masculine ignorance that peace would soon be restored. But three months passed, and there was no return of repose. Meg looked worn and nervous, the babies absorbed every minute of her time, the house was neglected, and Kitty, the cook, who took life easy, kept him on short commons. When he went out in the morning, he was bewildered by small commissions for the captive mamma. If he came gaily in at night, eager to embrace his family, he was quenched by a hush. They are just asleep after worrying all day. If he proposed a little amusement at home, no, it would disturb the babies. If he hinted at a lecture or a concert, he was answered with a reproachful look and a decided, leave my children for pleasure, never. His sleep was broken by infant wails and visions of a phantom figure pacing noiselessly to and fro in the watches of the night. 
His meals were interrupted by the frequent flight of the presiding genius, who deserted him, half-helped, if a muffled chirp sounded from the nest above. And when he read his paper of an evening, Demi's colic got into the shipping list, and Daisy's fall affected the price of stocks, for Mrs. Brooke was only interested in domestic news. The poor man was very uncomfortable, for the children had bereft him of his wife. Home was merely a nursery, and the perpetual hushing made him feel like a brutal intruder whenever he entered the sacred precincts of Babyland. He bore it very patiently for six months, and when no signs of amendment appeared, he did what other paternal exiles do, tried to get a little comfort elsewhere. Scott had married and gone to housekeeping not far off, and John fell into the way of running over for an hour or two of an evening, when his own parlor was empty and his own wife singing lullabies that seemed to have no end. Mrs. Scott was a lively pretty girl with nothing to do but be agreeable, and she performed her mission most successfully. The parlor was always bright and attractive, the chessboard ready, the piano in tune, plenty of gay gossip, and a nice little supper set forth in tempting style. John would have preferred his own fireside if it had not been so lonely. But as it was, he gratefully took the next best thing and enjoyed his neighbor's society. Meg rather approved of the new arrangement at first, and found it a relief to know that John was having a good time instead of dozing in the parlor, or tramping about the house and waking the children. But by and by, when the teething worry was over and the idols went to sleep at proper hours, leaving Mama time to rest, she began to miss John and find her work basket dull company when he was not sitting opposite in his old dressing gown, comfortably scorching his slippers on the fender. She would not ask him to stay at home, but felt injured because he did not know that she wanted him without being told. "'entirely forgetting the many evenings he had waited for her in vain. "'She was nervous and worn out with watching and worry, "'and in that unreasonable frame of mind "'which the best of mothers occasionally experience "'when domestic cares oppress them, "'want of exercise robs them of cheerfulness, "'and too much devotion to that idol of American women, "'the teapot, makes them feel as if they were all nerve and no muscle.' Yes, she would say, looking in the glass, I'm getting old and ugly. John doesn't find me interesting any longer. So he leaves his faded wife and goes to see his pretty neighbor, who has no encumbrances. Well, the babies love me. They don't care if I am thin and pale and haven't time to crimp my hair. They are my comfort. And some day John will see what I've gladly sacrificed for them. Won't he, my precious? To which pathetic appeal Daisy would answer with a coo, or Demi with a crow, and Meg would put by her lamentations for a maternal revel, which soothed her solitude for the time being. But the pain increased as politics absorbed John, who was always running over to discuss interesting points with Scott, quite unconscious that Meg missed him. Not a word did she say, however, till her mother found her in tears one day and insisted on knowing what the matter was, for Meg's drooping spirits had not escaped her observation. 
I wouldn't tell anyone except you, mother, but I really do need advice. For if John goes on much longer, I might as well be widowed, replied Mrs. Brooke, drying her tears on Daisy's bib with an injured air. Goes on how, my dear? asked her mother anxiously. He's away all day, and at night when I want to see him, he is continually going over to the Scots. It isn't fair that I should have the hardest work and never any amusement. Men are very selfish, even the best of them. So are women, but don't blame John till you see where you are wrong yourself. But it can't be right for him to neglect me. Don't you neglect him? My mother, I thought you'd take my part. So I do as far as sympathizing goes, but I think the fault is yours, Meg. I don't see how. Let me show you. Did John ever neglect you, as you call it, while you made it a point to give him your society of an evening, his only leisure time? No, but I can't do it now with two babies to tend. I think you could, dear, and I think you ought. May I speak quite freely, and will you remember that it's mother who blames as well as mother who sympathizes? Indeed I will. Speak to me as if I were little Meg again. I often feel as if I needed teaching more than ever since these babies look to me for everything. Meg drew her low chair beside her mother's, and with a little interruption in either lap, the two women rocked and talked lovingly together, feeling that the tie of motherhood made them the more one than ever. You have only made the mistake that most young wives make, forgotten your duty to your husband in your love for your children. A very natural and forgivable mistake, Meg, but one that had better be remedied before you take to different ways. For children should draw you nearer than ever, not separate you, as if they were all yours, and John had nothing to do but support them. I've seen it for some weeks, but have not spoken, feeling sure it would come right in time. I'm afraid it won't. If I ask him to stay, he'll think I'm jealous, and I wouldn't insult him by such an idea. He doesn't see that I want him, and I don't know how to tell him without words. Make it so pleasant he won't want to go away. My dear, he's longing for his little home, but it isn't home without you, and you are always in the nursery. Oughtn't I to be there? Not all the time. Too much confinement makes you nervous, and then you are unfitted for everything. Besides, you owe something to John as well as to the babies. Don't neglect husband for children. Don't shut him out of the nursery, but teach him how to help in it. His place is there as well as yours, and the children need him. Let him feel that he has a part to do, and he will do it gladly and faithfully, and it will be better for you all. You really think so, Mother? I know it, Meg, for I've tried it, and I seldom give advice unless I've proved its practicability. When you and Joe were little, I went on just as you are, feeling as if I didn't do my duty unless I devoted myself wholly to you. Poor father took to his books, after I had refused all offers of help, and left me to try my experiment alone. 
I struggled along as well as I could, but Joe was too much for me. I nearly spoiled her by indulgence. You were poorly, and I worried about you till I fell sick myself. Then father came to the rescue, quietly managed everything, and made himself so helpful that I saw my mistake, and never have been able to get on without him since. That is the secret of our home happiness. He does not let business wean him from the little cares and duties that affect us all, and I try not to let domestic worries destroy my interest in his pursuits. Each do our own part alone in many things, but at home we work together always. It is so, mother. It is so, mother, and my great wish is to be to my husband and children what you have been to yours. Show me how I'll do anything you say. You always were my docile daughter. Well, dear, if I were you, I'd let John have more to do with the management of Demi, for the boy needs training, and it's none too soon to begin. Then I do what I have often proposed. Let Hannah come and help you. She is a capital nurse, and you may trust the precious babies to her while you do more housework. You need the exercise. Hannah would enjoy the rest, and John would find his wife again. Go out more. Keep cheerful as well as busy, for you are the sunshine maker of the family, and if you get dismal, there is no fair weather. Then I'd try to take an interest in whatever John likes. Talk with him. Let him read to you. Exchange ideas and help each other in that way. Don't shut yourself up in a bandbox because you are a woman, but understand what is going on and educate yourself to take your part in the world's work, for it all affects you and yours. John is so sensible, I'm afraid he will think I'm stupid if I ask questions about politics and things. I don't believe he would. Love covers a multitude of sins. And of whom could you ask more freely than of him? Try it and see if he doesn't find your society far more agreeable than Mrs. Scott's suppers. I will. Poor John. I'm afraid I have neglected him sadly. But I thought I was right. And he never said anything. He tried not to be selfish. But he has felt rather forlorn, I fancy. This is just the time, Meg, when young married people are apt to grow apart, and the very time when they ought to be most together. For the first tenderness soon wears off, unless care is taken to preserve it. And no time is so beautiful and precious to parents, and no time is so beautiful and precious to parents as the first years of the little lives given to them to train. Don't let John be a stranger to the babies for they will do more to keep him safe and happy in this world of trial and temptation than anything else. And through them you will learn to know and love one another as you should. Now, dear, good-bye. Think over Mother's preachment, act upon it if it seems good, and God bless you all. Meg did think it over, found it good, and acted upon it, though the first attempt was not made exactly as she planned to have it. Of course, the children tyrannized over her and ruled the house as soon as they found out that kicking and squalling brought them whatever they wanted. Mama was an abject slave to their caprices, but Papa was not so easily subjugated, 
and occasionally afflicted his tender spouse by an attempt at paternal discipline with his obstreperous son. For Demi inherited a trifle of his sire's firmness of character. We won't call it obstinacy. And when he made up his little mind to have or do anything, all the king's horses and all the king's men could not change that pertinacious little mind. Mama thought the deer too young to be taught to conquer his prejudices, but Papa believed that it never was too soon to learn obedience. So Master Demi early discovered that when he undertook to wrestle with Parpar, he always got the worst of it. Yet like the Englishman, Baby respected the man who conquered him, and loved the father whose grave no-no was more impressive than all Mama's love-pats. A few days after the talk with her mother, Meg resolved to try a social evening with John. So she ordered a nice supper, set the parlor in order, dressed herself prettily, and put the children to bed early, that nothing should interfere with her experiment. But unfortunately, Demi's most unconquerable prejudice was against going to bed, and that night he decided to go on a rampage. So poor Meg sang and rocked, told stories, and tried every sleep-provoking wile she could devise, but all in vain. The big eyes wouldn't shut, and long after Daisy had gone to Bilo, like the chubby little bunch of good nature she was, naughty Demi lay staring at the light, with the most discouragingly wide-awake expression of countenance. "'Will Demi lie still like a good boy while Mama runs down and gives poor Papa his tea?' asked Meg, as the hall door softly closed, and the well-known step went tiptoeing into the dining-room. "'Me has tea,' said Demi, preparing to join in the revel. "'No, but I'll save you some little cakeys for breakfast, if you'll go bye-bye like Daisy. Will you, lovey?' Is, and Demi shut his eyes tight as if to catch sleep and hurry the desired day. Taking advantage of the propitious moment, Meg slipped away and ran down to greet her husband with a smiling face and the little blue bow in her hair, which was his especial admiration. He saw it at once and said with pleased surprise, Why, little mother, how gay we are tonight! Do you expect company? Only you, dear. Is it a birthday, anniversary, or anything? No, I'm tired of being dowdy, so I dressed up as a change. You always make yourself nice for table, no matter how tired you are, so why shouldn't I when I have the time? I do it out of respect for you, my dear, said old-fashioned John. Ditto, ditto, Mr. Brooke, laughed Meg, looking young and pretty again as she nodded to him over the teapot. Well, it's altogether delightful and like old times. This tastes right. I drink your health, dear. And John sipped his tea with an air of reposeful rapture, which was a very short duration, however, for as he put down his cup, the door handle rattled mysteriously, and a little voice was heard saying impatiently, Opie-doy, me's tummin'. It's that naughty boy. I told him to go to sleep alone, and here he is, downstairs getting his death a cold, pattering over that canvas, said Meg, answering the call. Morning now, announced Demi in joyful tone, as he entered, with his long nightgown gracefully festooned over his arm, 
and every curl bobbing gaily as he pranced about the table, eyeing the cakeys with loving glances. No, it isn't morning yet. You must go to bed and not trouble poor Mama. Then you can have the little cake with sugar on it. Me loves Parpar, said the artful one, preparing to climb the paternal knee and revel in forbidden joys. But John shook his head and said to Meg, If you told him to stay up there and go to sleep alone, make him do it, or he will never learn to mind you. Yes, of course. Come, Demi. And Meg led her son away, feeling a strong desire to spank the little marplot, who hopped beside her, laboring under the delusion that the bribe was to be administered as soon as they reached the nursery. Nor was he disappointed, for that short-sighted woman actually gave him a lump of sugar, tucked him into his bed, and forbade any more promenades till morning. Yes, said Demi, the perjured, blissfully sucking his sugar and regarding his first attempt as eminently successful. Meg returned to her place, and supper was progressing pleasantly when the little ghost walked again and exposed the maternal delinquencies by boldly demanding, More sugar, Marmar! Now this won't do, said John, hardening his heart against the engaging little sinner. We shall never know any peace till that child learns to go to bed properly. You have made a slave of yourself long enough. Give him one lesson, and then there will be an end of it. Put him in his bed and leave him, Meg. He won't stay there. He never does unless I sit by him. I'll manage him. Demi, go upstairs and get into your bed, as Mama bids you. Sant, replied the young rebel, helping himself to the coveted cakey and beginning to eat the same with calm audacity. You must never say that to Papa. I shall carry you if you don't go yourself. Go away! Me don't love Parpar! And Demi retired to his mother's skirts for protection. But even that refuge proved unavailing, for he was delivered over to the enemy with a be gentle with him, John, which struck the culprit with dismay. For when Mama deserted him, then the judgment day was at hand. Bereft of his cake, defrauded of his frolic, and borne away by a strong hand to that detested bed, poor Demi could not restrain his wrath, but openly defied Papa, and kicked and screamed lustily all the way upstairs. The minute he was put into bed on one side, he rolled out on the other and made for the door, only to be ignominiously caught up by the tail of his little toga and put back again, which lively performance was kept up till the young man's strength gave out, when he devoted himself to roaring at the top of his voice. This vocal exercise usually conquered Meg, but John sat as unmoved as the post, which is popularly believed to be deaf. No coaxing, no sugar, no lullaby, no story. Even the light was put out, and only the red glow of the fire enlivened the big dark, which Demi regarded with curiosity rather than fear. This new order of things disgusted him, and he howled dismally for more, more, as his angry passions subsided and recollections of his tender bondwoman returned to the captive autocrat. The plaintive wail which succeeded the passionate roar went to Meg's heart, and she ran up to say beseechingly, 
Let me stay with him. He'll be good now, John. No, my dear. I've told him he must go to sleep, as you bid him, and he must, if I stay here all night. But he'll cry himself sick, pleaded Meg, reproaching herself for deserting her boy. No, he won't. He's so tired he will soon drop off, and then the matter is settled, for he will understand that he has got to mind. Don't interfere. I'll manage him. He's my child, and I can't have his spirit broken by harshness. He's my child, and I won't have his temper spoiled by indulgence. Go down, my dear, and leave the boy to me. When John spoke in that masterful tone, Meg always obeyed and never regretted her docility. Please, let me kiss him once, John. Certainly. Demi, say good night to Mama and let her go and rest, for she is very tired with taking care of you all day. Meg always insisted upon it that the kiss won the victory, for after it was given, Demi sobbed more quietly and lay quite still at the bottom of the bed, whither he had wriggled in his anguish of mind. Poor little man, he's worn out with sleep and crying. I'll cover him up and then go set Meg's heart at rest, thought John, creeping to the bedside, hoping to find his rebellious heir asleep. But he wasn't. For the moment his father peeped at him, Demi's eyes opened, his little chin began to quiver, and he put up his arms, saying with a penitent hiccup, <coughs> Me dood now. Sitting on the stairs outside, Meg wondered at the long silence which followed the uproar, and after imagining all sorts of impossible accidents, she slipped into the room to set her fears at rest. Demi lay fast asleep, not in his usual spread-eagle attitude, but in a subdued bunch, cuddled close in the circle of his father's arm, and holding his father's finger, as if he felt that justice was tempered with mercy and had gone to sleep a sadder and wiser baby. So held, John had waited with a womanly patience till the little hand relaxed its hold, and while waiting had fallen asleep, more tired by that tussle with his son than with his whole day's work. As Meg stood watching the two faces on the pillow, she smiled to herself and then slipped away again, saying in a satisfied tone, I never need fear that John will be too harsh with my babies. He does know how to manage them and will be a great help, for Demi is getting too much for me. When John came down at last, expecting to find a pensive or reproachful wife, he was agreeably surprised to find Meg placidly trimming a bonnet and to be greeted with the request to read something about the election if he was not too tired. John saw in a minute that a revolution of some kind was going on, but wisely asked no questions, knowing that Meg was such a transparent little person she couldn't keep a secret to save her life, and therefore the clue would soon appear. He read a long debate with the most amiable readiness and then explained it in his most lucid manner, while Meg tried to look deeply interested, to ask intelligent questions, and keep her thoughts from wandering from the state of the nation to the state of her bonnet. In her secret soul, however, she decided that politics were as bad as mathematics, and that the mission of politicians seemed to be calling each other names. But she kept these feminine ideas to herself, and when John paused, shook her head and said, with what she thought diplomatic ambiguity, 
Well, I really don't see what we are coming to. John laughed and watched her for a minute as she poised a pretty little preparation of lace and flowers on her hand and regarded it with the genuine interest which his harangue had failed to waken. She is trying to like politics for my sake, so I'll try and like millinery for hers. That's only fair, thought John the Just, adding aloud, That's very pretty. Is it what you call a breakfast cap? My dear man, it's a bonnet. My very best go to concert and theater bonnet. I beg your pardon. It was so small I naturally mistook it for one of the flyaway things you sometimes wear. How do you keep it on? These bits of lace are fastened under the chin with a rosebud, so. And Meg illustrated by putting on the bonnet and regarding him with an air of calm satisfaction that was irresistible. It's a love of a bonnet, but I prefer the face inside, for it looks young and happy again. And John kissed the smiling face, to the great detriment of the rosebud under the chin. I'm glad you like it, for I want you to take me to one of the new concerts some night. I really need some music to put me in tune. Will you please? Of course I will, with all my heart, or anywhere else you like. You have been shut up so long. It will do you no end of good, and I shall enjoy it of all things. What put it into your head, little mother? Well, I had a talk with Marmy the other day, and told her how nervous and cross and out of sorts I felt, and she said I needed change and less care. So Hannah is to help me with the children, and I'm to see to things about the house more, and now and then have a little fun, just to keep me from getting to be a fidgety, broken-down old woman before my time. It's only an experiment, John, and I want to try it for your sake as much as for mine, because I've neglected you shamefully lately, and I'm going to make home what it used to be, if I can. You don't object, I hope. Never mind what John said, or what a very narrow escape the little bonnet had from utter ruin. All that we have any business to know is that John did not appear to object. "'judging from the changes which gradually took place in the house and its inmates. "'It was not all paradise by any means, "'but everyone was better for the division of labor system. "'The children throve under the paternal rule, "'for accurate, steadfast John brought order and obedience into babydom, "'while Meg recovered her spirits and composed her nerves "'by plenty of wholesome exercise, a little pleasure, and much confidential conversation with her sensible husband. Home grew homelike again, and John had no wish to leave it, unless he took Meg with him. The Scots came to the brooks now, and everyone found the little house a cheerful place, full of happiness, content, and family love. Even Sally Moffat liked to go there. It is always so quiet and pleasant here, it does me good, Meg, she used to say, looking about her with wistful eyes, as if trying to discover the charm that she might use it in her great house, full of splendid loneliness. For there were no riotous, sunny-faced babies there, and Ned lived in a world of his own, where there was no place for her. This household happiness did not come all at once, but John and Meg had found the key to it, and each year of married life taught them how to use it, unlocking the treasuries of real home love and mutual helpfulness, which the poorest may possess, 
and the richest cannot buy. This is the sort of shelf on which young wives and mothers may consent to be laid, safe from the restless fret and fever of the world, finding loyal lovers in the little sons and daughters who cling to them, undaunted by sorrow, poverty, or age, walking side by side through fair and stormy weather with a faithful friend who is, in the true sense of the good old Saxon word, the house band, and learning, as Meg learned, that a woman's happiest kingdom is home, her highest honor the art of ruling it, not as a queen, but as a wise wife and mother. End of chapter 38 I didn't know that about the word husband. I'm sure some of you did, because some of you actually study this stuff for, for a living. Um, but that is so cool that it's an old Anglo-Saxon word and that it meant house band, which uh, is still missing something for me, because I'm sure the word band carries much more weight then than it does now. But it's still interesting to know. And it's just a nice ending to the chapter, isn't it? I like that one. I like that one. It makes me laugh and smile with that kind of misty smile. Now we move on to a Lori and Amy chapter, and it's called Lazy Lawrence, so you already know what's going on. Poor Lori, uh, crushed, crushed in his hopes to marry Joe, has gone to Nice. Amy is there. Joe is out of the picture. And Lori's trying to find his way through the emotional morass that he finds himself in. I wish I hadn't put this out of order for you. This is the one that really should have come before chapter 41. But there it is. For Again, for those of you who are not listening in real time, you won't notice the blip. For those of you who are listening in real time, huge apologies. But this is where a lot of deepening... We just had a bunch of deepening of uh, Meg and John's relationship. And now we start to see some resonance in Lori and Amy's relationship. I've always been rather surprised at Amy in this chapter. I'm surprised at her reserve and internal strength, and I am also surprised that she had the guts to say some of the things that she says to Lori. Uh, it all works out, but it is knowing her character and how she can machinate more than the other sisters. I've always been impressed because she seems to be finally coming into her own as a very strong young woman. So here you are, chapter 39, Lazy Lawrence. Chapter 39, Lazy Lawrence Lori went to Nice, intending to stay a week and remained a month. He was tired of wandering about alone, and Amy's familiar presence seemed to give a home-like charm to the foreign scenes in which she bore a part. He rather missed the petting he used to receive, and enjoyed a taste of it again, for no attentions, however flattering from strangers, were half so pleasant as the sisterly adoration of the girls at home. Amy never would pet him like the others, but she was very glad to see him now, and quite clung to him, feeling that he was the representative of the dear family for whom she longed more than she would confess. They naturally took comfort in each other's society, and were much together riding, walking, dancing, or dawdling. For at Nice, no one can be very industrious during the gay season. 
but while apparently amusing themselves in the most careless fashion, they were half-consciously making discoveries and forming opinions about each other. Amy rose daily in the estimation of her friend, but he sank in hers, and each felt the truth before a word was spoken. Amy tried to please, and succeeded, for she was grateful for the many pleasures he gave her, and repaid him with the little services to which womanly women know how to lend an indescribable charm. Lorry made no effort of any kind, but just let himself drift along as comfortably as possible, trying to forget and feeling that all women owed him a kind word because one had been cold to him. It cost him no effort to be generous, and he would have given Amy all the trinkets in Nice if she would have taken them. But at the same time he felt that he could not change the opinion she was forming of him, and he rather dreaded the keen blue eyes that seemed to watch him with such half-sorrowful, half-scornful surprise. All the rest have gone to Monaco for the day. I preferred to stay at home and write letters. They are done now, and I am going to Valrosa to sketch. Will you come? said Amy, as she joined Laurie one lovely day when he lounged in, as usual, about noon. Well, yes, but isn't it rather warm for such a long walk? he answered slowly, for the shaded salon looked inviting after the glare without. I'm going to have a little carriage, and Baptiste can drive, so you'll have nothing to do but hold your umbrella and keep your gloves nice, returned Amy, with a sarcastic glance at the immaculate kids, which were a weak point with Laurie. Then I'll go with pleasure, and he put out his hand for her sketchbook, but she tucked it under her arm with a sharp, Don't trouble yourself, it's no exertion to me, but you don't look equal to it. Lorry lifted his eyebrows and followed at a leisurely pace as she ran downstairs. But when they got into the carriage, he took the reins himself and left little Baptiste nothing to do but fold his arms and fall asleep on his perch. The two never quarreled. Amy was too well-bred, and just now Lorry was too lazy, so in a minute he peeped under her hat-brim with an inquiring air. She answered him with a smile, and they went on together in the most amicable manner. It was a lovely drive, along winding roads rich in the picturesque scenes that delight beauty-loving eyes. Here, an ancient monastery, whence the solemn chanting of the monks came down to them, there a bare-legged shepherd in wooden shoes, pointed hat, and rough jacket over one shoulder, sat piping on a stone while his goat skipped among the rocks or lay at his feet. Meek, mouse-colored donkeys laden with panniers of freshly cut grass passed by, with a pretty girl in a capelin sitting between the green piles, or an old woman spinning with a distaff as she went. Brown, soft-eyed children ran out from the quaint stone hovels to offer nosegays or bunches of oranges still on the bough. Gnarled olive trees covered the hills with their dusky foliage. Fruit hung golden in the orchard, and great scarlet anemones fringed the roadside. 
while beyond green slopes and craggy heights, the maritime Alps rose sharp and white against the blue Italian sky. Valrosa well deserved its name, for in that climate of perpetual summer, roses blossomed everywhere. They overhung the archway, thrust themselves between the bars of the great gate, with a sweet welcome to passers-by, and lined the avenue, winding through lemon trees and feathery palms up to the villa on the hill. Every shadowy nook where seats invited one to stop and rest was a mass of bloom. Every cool grotto had its marble nymph smiling from a veil of flowers, and every fountain reflected crimson, white, or pale pink roses, leaning down to smile at their own beauty. Roses covered the walls of the house, draped the cornices, climbed the pillars, and ran riot over the balustrade of the wide terrace, whence one looked down on the sunny Mediterranean and the white-walled city on its shore. This is a regular honeymoon paradise, isn't it? Did you ever see such roses? asked Amy, pausing on the terrace to enjoy the view and a luxurious whiff of perfume that came wandering by. No, nor felt such thorns, returned Laurie, with his thumb in his mouth, after a vain attempt to capture a solitary scarlet flower that grew just beyond his reach. Try lower down and pick those that have no thorns, said Amy, gathering three of the tiny cream-colored ones that starred the wall behind her. She put them in his buttonhole as a peace offering, and he stood a minute looking down at them with a curious expression. For in the Italian part of his nature there was a touch of superstition, and he was just then in that state of half-sweet, half-bitter melancholy, when imaginative young men find significance in trifles and food for romance everywhere. He had thought of Joe in reaching after the thorny red rose, for vivid flowers became her, and she had often worn ones like that from the greenhouse at home. The pale roses Amy gave him were the sort that the Italians lay in dead hands, never in bridal wreaths, and for a moment he wondered if the omen was for Joe or for himself. But the next instant his American common sense got the better of his sentimentality, and he laughed a heartier laugh than Amy had heard since he came. It's good advice. You'd better take it and save your fingers, she said, thinking her speech amused him. Thank you, I will, he answered in jest, and a few months later he did it in earnest. Laurie, when are you going to your grandfather, she asked presently, as she settled herself on a rustic seat. Very soon. You have said that a dozen times within the last three weeks. I dare say. Short answers save trouble. He expects you, and you really ought to go. Hospitable creature, I know it. Then why don't you do it? Natural depravity, I suppose. Natural indolence, you mean. It's really dreadful, and Amy looked severe. Not so bad as it seems, for I should only plague him if I went so I might as well stay and plague you a little longer. You can bear it better. In fact, I think it agrees with you excellently. 
and Lorry composed himself for a lounge on the broad ledge of the balustrade. Amy shook her head and opened her sketchbook with an air of resignation. But she had made up her mind to lecture that boy, and in a minute she began again. What are you doing just now? Watching lizards. No, no. I mean, what do you intend and wish to do? Smoke a cigarette, if you'll allow me. How provoking you are. I don't approve of cigars, and I will only allow it on condition that you let me put you into my sketch. I need a figure. With all the pleasure in life, how will you have me, full length or three quarters, or my head or my heels? I should respectfully suggest a recumbent posture. Then put yourself in also and call it dolce far niente. Stay as you are and go to sleep if you like. I intend to work hard, said Amy in her most energetic tone. What delightful enthusiasm! And he leaned against a tall urn with an air of entire satisfaction. What would Joe say if she saw you now? asked Amy impatiently, hoping to stir him up by the mention of her still more energetic sister's name. As usual, go away, Teddy, I'm busy, he laughed as he spoke, but the laugh was not natural, and a shade passed over his face, for the utterance of the familiar name touched the wound that was not healed yet. Both tone and shadow struck Amy. For she had seen and heard them before, and now she looked up in time to catch a new expression on Laurie's face a hard, bitter look, full of pain, dissatisfaction, and regret. It was gone before she could study it, and the listless expression back again. She watched him for a moment with artistic pleasure, thinking how like an Italian he looked. As he lay basking in the sun with uncovered head and eyes full of southern dreaminess, for he seemed to have forgotten her and fallen into a reverie. You look like the effigy of a young knight asleep on his tomb, she said, carefully tracing the well cut profile defined against the dark stone. Wish I was. That's a foolish wish, unless you have spoiled your life. You are so changed. I sometimes think. There Amy stopped, with a half timid, half wistful look, more significant than her unfinished speech. Laurie saw and understood the affectionate anxiety which she hesitated to express, and looking straight into her eyes said, just as he used to say it to her mother, It's all right, ma'am. That satisfied her and set at rest the doubts that had begun to worry her lately. It also touched her, and she showed that it did by the cordial tone in which she said, I'm glad of that. I didn't think you'd been a very bad boy, but I fancied you might have wasted money at that wicked Baden Baden, lost your heart to some charming French woman with a husband, or got into some of the scrapes that young men seem to consider a necessary part of a foreign tour. Don't stay out there in the sun. Come and lie on the grass here and let us be friendly, as Joe used to say, when we got into the sofa corner and told secrets. Laurie obediently threw himself down on the turf and began to amuse himself by sticking daisies into the ribbons of Amy's hat that lay there. 
I'm all ready for the secrets, and he glanced up with a decided expression of interest in his eyes. I've none to tell. You may begin. Haven't one to bless myself with. I thought perhaps you'd had some news from home. You have heard all that has come lately. Don't you hear often? I fancied Joe would send you volumes. She's very busy. I'm roving about so. It's impossible to be regular, you know. When do you begin your great work of art, Raffaella? he asked, changing the subject abruptly after another pause, in which he had been wondering if Amy knew his secret and wanted to talk about it. Never, she answered with a despondent but decided air. Rome took all the vanity out of me, for after seeing the wonders there, I felt too insignificant to live and gave up all my foolish hopes in despair. Why should you with so much energy and talent? That's just why, because talent isn't genius, and no amount of energy can make it so. I want to be great or nothing. I won't be a commonplace dauber, so I don't intend to try any more. And what are you going to do with yourself now, if I may ask? Polish up my other talents and be an ornament to society if I get the chance. It was a characteristic speech and sounded daring, but audacity becomes young people, and Amy's ambition had a good foundation. Laurie smiled, but he liked the spirit with which she took up a new purpose when a long-cherished one died and spent no time lamenting. Good, and here is where Fred Vaughn comes in, I fancy. Amy preserved a discreet silence, but there was a conscious look in her downcast face that made Laurie sit up and say gravely, Now I'm going to play brother and ask questions, may I? I don't promise to answer. Your face will, if your tongue won't. You aren't woman of the world enough yet to hide your feelings, my dear. I heard rumors about Fred and you last year, and it's my private opinion that if he had not been called home so suddenly and detained so long, something would have come of it, hey? That's not for me to say, was Amy's grim reply, but her lips would smile, and there was a traitorous sparkle of the eye which betrayed that she knew her power and enjoyed the knowledge. You are not engaged, I hope, and Laurie looked very elder brotherly and grave all of a sudden. No, but you will be if he comes back and goes properly down on his knees, won't you? Very likely. Then you are fond of old Fred? I could be if I tried. But you don't intend to try till the proper moment? Bless my soul, what unearthly prudence! He's a good fellow, Amy, but not the man I fancied you'd like. He is rich, a gentleman, and has delightful manners, began Amy, trying to be quite cool and dignified, but feeling a little ashamed of herself in spite of the sincerity of her intentions. I understand. Queens of society can't get on without money, so you mean to make a good match and start in that way? Quite right and proper as the world goes, but it sounds odd from the lips of one of your mother's girls. True, nevertheless. A short speech, but the quiet decision with which it was uttered 
contrasted curiously with the young speaker. Laurie felt this instinctively and laid himself down again with a sense of disappointment which he could not explain. His look and silence, as well as a certain inward self-disapproval, ruffled Amy and made her resolve to deliver her lecture without delay. I wish you'd do me the favor to rouse yourself a little, she said sharply. Do it for me, there's a dear girl. I could if I tried, and she looked as if she would like doing it in the most summary style. Try then, I give you leave, returned Laurie, who enjoyed having someone to tease after his long abstinence from his favorite pastime. You'd be angry in five minutes. I'm never angry with you. It takes two flints to make a fire. You are as cool and soft as snow. You don't know what I can do. Snow produces a glow and a tingle if applied rightly. Your indifference is half affectation, and a good stirring up would prove it. Stir away. It won't hurt me, and it may amuse you, as the big man said when his little wife beat him. Regard me in the light of a husband or as a carpet, and beat till you are tired, if that sort of exercise agrees with you. Being decidedly nettled herself, and longing to see him shake off the apathy that so altered him, Amy sharpened both tongue and pencil and began. Flo and I have got a new name for you. It's Lazy Lawrence. How do you like it? She thought it would annoy him, but he only folded his arms under his head with an imperturbable, That's not bad. Thank you, ladies. Do you want to know what I honestly think of you? Pining to be told. Well, I despise you. If she had even said, I hate you, in a petulant or coquettish tone, he would have laughed and rather liked it. But the grave, almost sad accent in her voice made him open his eyes and ask quickly, Why, if you please? Because, with every chance for being good, useful, and happy, you are faulty, lazy, and miserable. Strong language, mademoiselle. If you like it, I'll go on. Pray do, it's quite interesting. I thought you'd find it so. Selfish people always like to talk about themselves. Am I selfish? The question slipped out involuntarily, and in a tone of surprise, for the one virtue on which he prided himself was generosity. Yes, very selfish, continued Amy, in a calm, cool voice twice as effective just then as an angry one. I'll show you how, for I have studied you while we were frolicking, and I am not at all satisfied with you. Here you have been abroad nearly six months, and done nothing but waste time and money and disappoint your friends. Isn't a fellow to have any pleasure after a four-year grind? You don't look as if you'd had much. At any rate, you are none the better for it, as far as I can see. I said when we first met that you had improved. Now I take it all back, for I don't think you half so nice as when I left you at home. You have grown abominably lazy. You like gossip and waste time on frivolous things. 
you are contented to be petted and admired by silly people instead of being loved and respected by wise ones. With money, talent, position, health, and beauty, ah, you like that old vanity, but it's the truth, so I can't help saying it. With all these splendid things to use and enjoy, you can find nothing to do but dawdle. And instead of being the man you ought to be, you are only... There she stopped with a look that had both pain and pity in it. St. Lawrence on a gridiron, added Laurie, blandly finishing the sentence. But the lecture began to take effect, for there was a wide-awake sparkle in his eyes now, and a half-angry, half-injured expression replaced the former indifference. I supposed you take it so. You men tell us we are angels and say we can make you what we will. But the instant we honestly try to do you good, you laugh at us and won't listen, which proves how much your flattery is worth. Amy spoke bitterly and turned her back on the exasperating martyr at her feet. In a minute, a hand came down over the page so that she could not draw, and Laurie's voice said, with a droll imitation of a penitent child, I will be good, oh, I will be good. But Amy did not laugh, for she was in earnest, and tapping on the outspread hand with her pencil said soberly, Aren't you ashamed of a hand like that? It's as soft and white as a woman's, and looks as if it never did anything but wear Joven's best gloves and pick flowers for ladies. You are not a dandy, thank heaven, so I'm glad to see there are no diamonds or big seal rings on it. Only the little old one Joe gave you so long ago. Dear soul, I wish she was here to help me. So do I. The hand vanished as suddenly as it came, and there was energy enough in the echo of her wish to suit even Amy. She glanced down at him with a new thought in her mind, but he was lying with his hat half over his face, as if for shade, and his mustache hid his mouth. She only saw his chest rise and fall with a long breath that might have been a sigh, and the hand that wore the ring nestled down into the grass as if to hide something too precious or too tender to be spoken of. All in a minute various hints and trifles assumed shape and significance in Amy's mind, and told her what her sister never had confided to her. She remembered that Laurie never spoke voluntarily of Joe. She recalled the shadow on his face just now, the change in his character, and the wearing of the little old ring, which was no ornament to a handsome hand. Girls are quick to read such signs and feel their eloquence. Amy had fancied that perhaps a love trouble was at the bottom of the alteration, and now she was sure of it. Her keen eyes filled, and when she spoke again, it was in a voice that could be beautifully soft and kind when she chose to make it so. I know I have no right to talk so to you, Laurie, and if you weren't the sweetest-tempered fellow in the world, you'd be very angry with me. But we are all so fond and proud of you, I couldn't bear to think they should be disappointed in you at home, as I have been though perhaps they would understand the change better than I do. I think they would, came from under the hat, in a grim tone, 
quite as touching as a broken one. They ought to have told me and not let me go blundering and scolding when I should have been more kind and patient than ever. I never did like that Miss Randall, and now I hate her, said artful Amy, wishing to be sure of her facts this time. Hang Miss Randall, and Laurie knocked the hat off his face with a look that left no doubt of his sentiments toward that young lady. I beg pardon, I thought, and there she paused diplomatically. No, you didn't. You knew perfectly well I never cared for anyone but Joe, Laurie said in his old impetuous tone, and turned his face away as he spoke. I did think so, but as they never said anything about it and you came away, I supposed I was mistaken. And Joe wouldn't be kind to you? Why, I was sure she loved you dearly. She was kind, but not in the right way. And it's lucky for her she didn't love me, if I'm the good-for-nothing fellow you think me. It's her fault, though, and you may tell her so. The hard, bitter look came back again as he said that, and it troubled Amy, for she did not know what balm to apply. I was wrong. I didn't know. I'm very sorry I was so cross. But I can't help wishing you'd bear it better, Teddy dear. Don't. That's her name for me. And Laurie put up his hand with a quick gesture to stop the words spoken in Joe's half-kind, half-reproachful tone. Wait till you've tried it, he added in a low voice, as he pulled up the grass by the handful. I'd take it manfully and be respected if I couldn't be loved, said Amy, with the decision of one who knew nothing about it. Now, Laurie flattered himself that he had borne it remarkably well, making no moan, asking no sympathy, and taking his trouble away to live it down alone. Amy's lecture put the matter in a new light, and for the first time it did look weak and selfish to lose heart at the first failure and shut himself up in moody indifference. He felt as if suddenly shaken out of a pensive dream and found it impossible to go to sleep again. Presently he sat up and asked slowly, Do you think Joe would despise me as you do? Yes, if she saw you now. She hates lazy people. Why don't you do something splendid and make her love you? I did my best, but it was no use. Graduating well, you mean? That was no more than you ought to have done for your grandfather's sake. It would have been shameful to fail after spending so much time and money when everyone knew that you could do well. I did fail. Say what you will, for Joe wouldn't love me, began Laurie, leaning his head on his hand in a despondent attitude. No, you didn't, and you'll say so in the end, for it did you good, and proved that you could do something if you tried. If you'd only set about another task of some sort, you'd soon be your hearty, happy self again, and forget your trouble. That's impossible. Try it and see. You needn't shrug your shoulders and think much she knows about such things. I don't pretend to be wise, but I am observing, and I see a great deal more than you'd imagine. I'm interested in other people's experiences and inconsistencies, and though I can't explain, I remember and use them for my own benefit. 
Love, Joe, all your days if you choose, but don't let it spoil you, for it's wicked to throw away so many good gifts because you can't have the one you want. There, I won't lecture any more, for I know you'll wake up and be a man in spite of that hard-hearted girl. Neither spoke for several minutes. Lori sat turning the little ring on his finger, and Amy put the last touches to the hasty sketch she had been working at while she talked. Presently she put it on his knee, merely saying, How do you like that? He looked, and then he smiled, as he could not well help doing, for it was capitally done, the long, lazy figure on the grass with listless face, half-shut eyes, and one hand holding a cigar, from which came the little wreath of smoke that encircled the dreamer's head. "'How well you draw,' he said with a genuine surprise, and pleasure at her skill, adding with a half-laugh, "'Yes, that's me.' "'As you are. This is as you were,' and Amy laid another sketch beside the one he held. It was not nearly so well done, but there was a life and spirit in it which atoned for many faults, and it recalled the past so vividly that a sudden change swept over the young man's face as he looked. Only a rough sketch of Lorry taming a horse, hat and coat were off, and every line of the active figure, resolute face, and commanding attitude was full of energy and meaning. The handsome brute, just subdued, stood arching his neck under the tightly drawn rein, with one foot impatiently pawing the ground, and ears pricked up as if listening for the voice that had mastered him. In the ruffled mane, the rider's breezy hair and erect attitude, there was a suggestion of suddenly arrested motion, of strength, courage, and youthful buoyancy, that contrasted sharply with the supine grace of the Dolce Far Niente sketch. Lori said nothing, but as his eye went from one to the other, Amy saw him flush up and fold his lips together as if he read and accepted the little lesson she had given him. That satisfied her, and without waiting for him to speak, she said in her sprightly way, Don't you remember the day you played Rary with Puck, and we all looked on? Meg and Beth were frightened, but Joe clapped and pranced, and I sat on the fence and drew you. I found that sketch in my portfolio the other day, touched it up, and kept it to show you. Much obliged. You've improved immensely since then, and I congratulate you. May I venture to suggest, in a honeymoon paradise, that five o'clock is the dinner hour at your hotel? Lori rose as he spoke, returned the pictures with a smile and a bow, and looked at his watch, as if to remind her that even moral lectures should have an end. He tried to resume his former easy, indifferent air, but it was an affectation now, for the rousing had been more efficacious than he would confess. Amy felt the shade of coldness in his manner and said to herself, Now I've offended him. Well, if it does him good, I'm glad. If it makes him hate me, I'm sorry. But it's true, and I can't take back a word of it. They laughed and chatted all the way home, 
and little Baptiste, up behind, thought that Monsieur and Mademoiselle were in charming spirits. But both felt ill at ease. Friendly frankness was disturbed. The sunshine had a shadow over it, and despite their apparent gaiety, there was a secret discontent in the heart of each. "'Shall we see you this evening, mon frere?' asked Amy, as they parted at her aunt's door. "'Unfortunately, I have an engagement. "'Au revoir, mademoiselle,' and Laurie bent as if to kiss her hand in the foreign fashion, which became him better than many men. Something in his face made Amy say quickly and warmly, "'No, be yourself with me, Laurie, and part in the good old way. "'I'd rather have a hearty English handshake "'than all the sentimental salutations in France. "'Good-bye, dear.' And with these words uttered in the tone she liked, Laurie left her after a handshake, almost painful in its heartiness. Next morning, instead of the usual call, Amy received a note which made her smile at the beginning and sigh at the end. My dear mentor, please make my adieu to your aunt and exult within yourself, for lazy Lawrence has gone to his grandpa like the best of boys. A pleasant winter to you, and may the gods grant you a blissful honeymoon at Valrosa. I think Fred would be benefited by a rouser. Tell him so with my congratulations. Yours gratefully, Telemachus. Good boy, I'm glad he's gone, said Amy, with an approving smile. The next minute her face fell as she glanced about the empty room, adding with an involuntary sigh, Yes, I am glad, but how I shall miss him. End of chapter 39 So, some intriguing moments between Laurie and Amy. All very good. All laying the groundwork for what comes later. And uh, I think that's it. This is a long podcast because those two chapters probably should have been on their own. So, I'm getting off. And I will talk to you in just a couple of days for you listening in real time. Have a great week. Uh, actually, <laughs> have a great however long it takes you to get to the next one. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlet. Please go to Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and the goldengatefiberinstitute.org. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, blogspot, B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T. Or at craftlit.libsyn.com. Libsyn is L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And don't forget, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.